Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Down to the 18th century, many theologians regularly considered the concept of beauty to be central to any discussion of the divine nature, and evangelical theologians were no exception to this fact. As these theologians read the Bible, especially the Hebrew scriptures, they were struck by various places where God is described as beautiful. For example, in Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist asserts, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Here, beauty is ascribed to God as a way of expressing the psalmist's conviction that the face-to-face vision of God is the profoundest experience available to a human being. Again, in Psalm 145, verse 5, the psalmist states that he will meditate on the glorious splendor or beauty of God's majesty. Similarly, the 8th century BC prophet Isaiah can predict that there is coming a day when God will be, quote, a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty, end of quote, to his people. That's found in Isaiah 28, verse 5. The most important biblical concept in this connection is probably that of glory. When used with reference to God, it emphasizes his greatness and transcendence, his splendor and his holiness. God is thus said to be clothed with glory, Psalm 104, verse 1. His works are full of his glory, Psalm 111, verse 3. The created realm, the product of his hands, speaks of this glory day after day, Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. But it is especially in his redemptive activity on the plane of history that his glory is revealed. The glory manifested in this activity is to be proclaimed throughout all the earth, Psalm 96, verse 3, so that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, Habakkuk 2, verse 14. In other words, it was their encounter with God on the plane of history that enabled the biblical authors to see God's beauty and loveliness shining through the created realm. Later theologians built upon these biblical foundations. For example, the 4th century North African thinker Augustine identifies God and beauty in a famous prayer from his confessions. I have learned to love you late, beauty at once so ancient and so new. I have learned to love you late. You were within me, and I was in the world outside myself. I searched for you outside myself, and disfigured as I was, I fell upon the lovely things of your creation. The beautiful things of this world kept me from you, and yet, if they had not been in you, they would have had no being at all. The material realm, according to this prayer, is only beautiful because it derives both its being and beauty from the one who is beauty itself, namely God. Augustine intimates that if he had been properly attendant to the derivative beauty of the world, he would have been led to its divine source. Augustine appears to have been fascinated by beauty and used his love of beauty in its many aspects to help him love the beauty of God. But Augustine stressed the two should not be confused. Thus speaking about God's 
creation of the heavens and the earth, Augustine can state again in the Confessions, It was you then, Lord, who made them, you who are beautiful, for they too are beautiful, you who are good, for they too are good, you who are, for they too are. But they are not beautiful and good as you are beautiful and good, nor do they have their being as you, their creator, have your being. In comparison with you, they have neither beauty, nor goodness, nor being at all. There is a tension here. On the one hand, there is Augustine's desire to maintain a clear distinction between the beauty of God and the beauty of creation, a distinction that derives from the emphasis of the Bible on the otherness and uniqueness of God. On the other hand, his imbibing of an element of Greek Platonic thought leads to the argument that what is beautiful in creation derives its beauty solely from its participation in ultimate beauty. This theological and philosophical discussion about the beauty of God comes to full flower in the medieval era. For instance, Thomas Aquinas, the quintessential medieval philosopher and theologian, carries on this discussion in relation to a two-pronged argument for ascribing all perfections to God. He must have all perfections since he possesses the attribute of aseity, that is, he is a self-subsistent being. Moreover, he must have them because he is the cause of perfections in his creatures, and any cause must also possess the perfections of its effects. In his commentary on Pseudo-Dionysius' The Divine Names, Aquinas applies this argument specifically to beauty as a divine attribute. There, he argues that God is called beauty because, as Aquinas comments, he gives beauty to all created beings according to the properties of each. He is, Aquinas goes on, most beautiful, and super beautiful, both because of his exceeding greatness, like the sun in relation to hot things, and because of his causality as a source of all that is beautiful in the universe. He is thus beautiful in himself, and not in respect of anything else. And since God has beauty as his own, he can communicate it to his creation. He is, therefore, the exemplary cause of all that is beautiful. Or, as Aquinas puts it elsewhere, things are beautiful, by the indwelling of God. As one enters the modern era in the 16th and 17th centuries, a profound reconstruction takes place in aesthetic thought. The watershed is probably the 18th century, when there is a dramatic shift away from the question of the nature of beauty to a focus upon the perceiver's experience of the beautiful and the determination of those conditions under which beauty is appreciated. Aesthetic perception now becomes the basic concept in aesthetics. And it is intriguing that there is a corresponding diminution of interest in the ascription of beauty to God. Nevertheless, one can still find representatives of the older tradition. Jonathan Edwards, for example, who stands at the center of 18th century evangelical spirituality and thinking, and who was deeply conversant with earlier theological thought, especially that of the Augustinian tradition, is a fabulous representative in this regard. There is no doubt that beauty is a central and defining category in Edwards' thinking about God. Beauty is, in Edwards' words, what we are more concerned with more than anything else. He regards beauty as a key distinguishing feature of the divine being. As he writes in his religious affections, God is God, and distinguished from all other beings, and exalted above him, chiefly by his divine beauty, which is infinitely diverse from all other beauty. Unlike creatures who receive their beauty from another, namely from God, it is peculiar to God, Edwards writes elsewhere, that he has beauty 
within himself. Edwards's conception of divine beauty thus serves to accentuate the biblical idea of the uniqueness and transcendence of God. Typical of the older tradition aesthetics, his central interest is not in what he calls secondary beauty, the beauty of created things, but primary beauty, that is, God. His writings contain no extended discussion of the nature of the fine arts or of human beauty. Even his occasional rhapsodies regarding the beauties of nature function chiefly as a foil to a deeper reflection on the divine beauty. Secondary beauty holds interest for him, basically because it mirrors the primary beauty of spiritual realities. Yet, in distinction from the Platonic emphasis on ascending from derivative beauty to that of ultimate beauty, Edwards moves in the opposite direction. In his personal narrative, for example, where he is describing his conversion to Christianity, he indicates that his conversion wrought a change in his entire outlook on the world. The appearance, he says, of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity, and love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, moon, and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and so in the daytime spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. What is striking about this passage is what Michael McClymond has called Edwards's mysticism, his capacity for seeing God in and through the world of nature. As McClyman goes on to note, this mysticism should not be should be could be explained in terms of the Platonic ascent to the archetype of beauty. Yet, as he rightly points out, Edwards's experience of God precedes his transformed view of nature. The New England philosopher travels from the primary beauty of God to the secondary beauty of the created realm. This recasting of the traditional perspective is typical, though, of a thinker who is consciously seeking to undo what Hans Frey has called the great reversal characteristic of early modernity, in which a theocentric worldview was replaced by an anthropocentric one. For Edwards, the beauty of creation exhibited, expressed, and communicated God's beauty and glory to men and women. In nature, God's beauty is visible. And thus he could state with regard to Christ. The beauties of nature are really emanations or shadows of the excellencies of the Son of God. So that when we are delighted with flowery meadows and gentle breezes of wind, we may consider that we see only the emanations of the sweet benevolence of Jesus Christ. When we behold the fragrant rose and lily, we see his love and purity. So the green trees and fields and singing of birds are the emanations of his infinite joy and benignity. The easiness and naturalness of trees and vines are shadows of his beauty and loveliness. The crystal rivers and murmuring streams are the footsteps of his favor, grace, and beauty. When we behold the light and brightness of the sun, the golden edges of an evening cloud, or the beauteous bow, that is the rainbow, we behold the adumbrations of his glory and goodness and in the blue sky of his mildness and gentleness. There are also many things wherein we may behold his awful majesty in the sun, in his strength, in comets, in thunder, 
in the hovering thunderclouds, in ragged rocks and the brows of mountains. Edwards's approach explains why aesthetic experience is for many people also regarded as a religious experience. It follows, of course, for Edwards that those who ignore the beauty of God in creation are committing sin. Moreover, Edwards is convinced that men and women uniformly fail in this regard, for they have lost the faculty to see the visible beauty of God in his creation. They perceive the secondary beauty, but fail to see the divine beauty that saturates nature. This faculty thus needs to be restored, and it is only restored in conversion. As we've thought about Edwards's reflections on the beauty of God, one account failed to be struck by the fact that Edwards was blessed with a heart devoted to the pursuit of God's glory. The great end of God's works, Edwards could write, is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. According to Joseph Haratunian, even a superficial perusal of the essays and sermons of Edwards reveals a mind passionately devoted to God, permeated with the beauty and excellence of God. Edwards is thus a tremendous uh, model for us to reflect on the beauty of God. Let me close with a passage from the sermon Ruth's Resolution, which Edwards preached during the revival in Northampton in 1734-35, and which he published three years later. Edwards is reflecting on Ruth's determination to cleave to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and to embrace her God, the God of Israel, as her own. Edwards states that this God is a glorious God. There is none like him who is infinite in glory and excellency. He is the most high God, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. His name is excellent in all the earth, and his glory is above the heavens. Among the gods there is none like unto him. There is none in heaven to be compared to him, nor are there any among the sons of the mighty that can be likened unto him. God is the fountain of all good, an inexhaustible fountain. He is an all-sufficient God, able to protect and defend and do all things. He is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, a strong rock and a high tower. He is a God who hath all things in his hands and does Whatsoever he pleases, he killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. He maketh poor and maketh rich. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. God is an infinitely holy God. There is none holy as the Lord, and he is infinitely good and merciful. Many that others worship and serve as gods are cruel beings, spirits that seek the ruin of souls. But this is a God that delighteth in mercy. His grace is infinite and endures forever. He is love itself, an infinite fountain and ocean of it. As Haratunian notes, this passage is characteristic of Edwards's view of the glory and beauty of God, and especially the focus on God's unique excellency and the fact that the God whom the believer seeks to glorify and serve is the creator of the universe, the fountain of all beauty, for he is beauty itself. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.